All right. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Rep by Rep Strength Podcast. Today, I'm sitting down with Pat Basil, strength conditioning coach at Hamilton College. Pat, thanks for joining us today. Sure, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Yeah, can you go ahead and give everybody a uh, brief rundown about what you do, where you're at, that kind of thing? Sure. So currently, I am the head strength coach at Hamilton College. We're a small D3 school in upstate New York where we have uh, 29 teams, and that makes up 600 athletes. Um, so that's who I work with. Um, that's where I'm at in my situation right now. Yeah, I definitely want to talk about um, what you were just saying about the, the movement screen. You know, because I've seen, I've been following along on Twitter and like a lot of guys have been, seem to be, I guess, arguing or debating about whether or not you need to do one instead of asking the question like, do you absolutely have to, or do you have the staff to do one, you know, and mm-hmm. um, things I've been seeing from guys that where it makes a hell of a lot of sense to me, especially when you were talking about, you have 600 athletes, right? Like yep. when are you going to take 600 athletes through, you know, an FMS screen, if that's what you're doing, you know, whereas absolutely you can get a pretty good idea of, who has what movement efficiencies or deficiencies, you know, when they're in the weight room every day, you know, and, and give you yeah. a pretty good read on what they can do. So, um, you know, when I versus some other other coaches that might only have like at a bigger school might only have one or two teams. And it's like, yeah, man, that I'm sure they can go through an FMS with their teams and because they have the time and uh, they don't have the schedule constraints that you have. So anyway, I, I agree with you in terms of, I don't, I don't think that they're absolutely necessary that you have to do them. You know, it's, it's a nice metric to have if you've got extra time and you need to, you know, validate your job, so to speak, but, um, it's not something that's absolutely necessary. You can get a pretty good idea of what athletes are like (laughs) when they're, when you see them lift, you know? Yeah. I think there's two other themes kind of behind that. One, you touched on validating, you know, validating your job. The, you got to look at who, who decides whether you keep your job or not. Is it the sport coach? Is it an admin? And then what does that person, so here's where you keep your job. What does that person really value in you as a strength coach? And I guarantee you it's not FMS scores. And I promise you it's not vertical jump scores. Athletic directors could care less about vertical jumps, one rep maxes, and FMSs. They care about, are people happy? Are injury rates down? Are you running a good, do you rock the boat? Are you tough to work with? That's what they will matter. So this idea of like justifying your job, the people who call the shots don't care about what we care about. So if, if you're doing it to look cool, you're doing it for yourself. And maybe a, maybe a show that throw the kids a bone and they think it's special, but the, if the program itself is no good, they'll see through that real quick. Um, so it's, I think there's a lot of things coaches do to either a look good, impress themselves, impress each other, but it really makes zero difference in people's perception of you. Uh, now, if you do it and the kids like it and the coaches like it, and therefore it keeps them happy and therefore it keeps the admins happy and therefore you keep your job, there's value to it. So mm-hmm. take it with a grain of salt. Um, and then going back to collecting any metric, whether it's an FMS or anything else, the whole point of collecting a measurement or any metric is to do something with that information. Mm-hmm. If you don't do anything with the information or the information you gather change, doesn't change 
anything you're doing, what the hell are you collecting it for? Mm-hmm. You're doing it just to do it. You know, how many people collect weigh-ins and jumps and it just sits in an Excel file? Yeah. Or they like look at, they, you know, ponder the vertical jumps for five minutes and then don't change anything. Mm-hmm. What'd you bother for? Why'd you collect jumps and, and weights and all that? If you're not going to do anything with it or wellness surveys or GPS data, if you don't do anything with it, why are you bothering? Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot, I think there's a lot of that. So that's another reason I don't bother with an FMS. One, it's just not, this is not logistically possible, but it's not going to change anything I do. It's just flat out not. I've never crum- come across a movement screen where I said, gee, this really, I'm glad this opened my eyes to this thing I wouldn't have known. Never happened. Hasn't happened. You know, our, our programming is dictated the way it is because of what I see in our logistics. A movement screen is not going to change how we do things. You know, if somebody, if somebody presented one with me and it did, I'd be all for it, but I've yet to find it. Um, that way, if somebody has one and it, and it can give me more information that changes what we do, then it's worth doing. Uh, but a lot of stuff is, I, it's either eyewash or they do it because X school did it or they did it at their last job. But it really doesn't, it really doesn't accomplish anything. So any metric, if it's not going to change something you do or it's not going to help you make decisions, it's a waste. By, by all definition, it's, it's a waste of time. So that's another reason I don't do one. Um, you can see what you need to see just by watching them train. Um, and beginners, regardless of where it is, what's it going to, what is a quality dumbbell rows, chin ups and, and your quality movement is going to fix. Like, let's say they got a weak core, their shoulder mobility isn't great. Okay. You're going to do some kind of dynamic warm where you're going to work on thoracic mobility or whatever it is. You're going to get stronger in the lunge pattern. You're going to do direct core work. What are you not going to train that you're going to pick up on? Like, okay. Your, your beginner athlete who's never trained needs core stability and they have a weak posterior chain. Uh, okay, great. I knew that before they walked in the door. Is it going to change anything in programming? No, it's not. So, yeah, therefore, how, we don't do it. Yeah, because how many people are underdeveloped, you know, with posterior chain work? You know, it's like yeah. I've, I've very rarely do I see people who are overdeveloped or too strong with their posterior chain, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't know if it's just who people pay attention to or lack of training knowledge or both or whatever, but. Um, you know, especially here in the tactical side, you know, posterior chain is so like I, I I fix so much stuff by just having guys work on hamstring curls, hamstring mm-hmm. curls, good mornings, um, reverse hypers, and a belt squat, and yep. it clears up a ton of issues. You know, and, and it's like, man, it's nothing magical here. It's literally just addressing the the weak underdeveloped muscle groupings that I've seen over and over and over again. And yep. I just know the deficiencies. So, um, but yeah, I, I agree with you. There's so many people that, you know, they may collect the data, but they have no idea what the hell to do with it. And then you're like, well, and it's, you know, you're absolutely on point. Like, how's it going to, how is it going to drive your decision-making? And if it doesn't, then why, why are we continuing to do this? Is it just a sacred cow that somebody said, Hey, we can't do this or we have to do this, you know, or is it a well thought out decision? Yep. There's there's two things you said that I, that I think are the real problem. It's one, what somebody else said, or who are we listening to? I think there's a huge deficiency in the field of thinking for yourself. 
Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of, oh, this person said, that person said, back squats are bad, don't wear weight belts, um, Olympic lifts are great, whatever it is. And they say, oh, this Louis Simmons said, Gray Cook said this. And it's like, what do you think? What, what have you seen with, what, is, what does Travis Barrett say? Mm-hmm. You know, you, ha- you have your own two eyes too. You have a brain. You can see what you see. And I think there's a lot of, oh, X person said this. And people just don't think for themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you don't think for yourself and you just copy what other people do, there can be no growth. If you just copy and paste the same thing, you never figure out anything new. And that's something I realized just throughout time is, you know, wait, why, why do we do this thing? Why do we do that? Are we really getting something out of it? And kind of like critical thinking. And for a second to say, you know, is, is that really true? Do I agree with that? Or I don't know about that. Or to the same, be open to saying, um, you know, maybe there is something there. Let me try it. It's too, I think a lot of people are also tied into their beliefs from like an ego standpoint. Mm-hmm. So they're not open to learning something new. So I think it's a lot of those, you know, based whether it's their ego or they're not sure in their own ability and their own reasoning. So they just latch onto somebody else. Um, so I think that's a big part of it too. You know, that, that kind of behind theme there. Yeah. And that was one thing. You know, I was, I was very fortunate to be under, to have some pretty good mentors early on that were saying, you know, A, you should always be, be learning, asking questions. And B, you should always, you know, be talking with the people in charge about, okay, well, this is what you're doing, but why is that? And if, mm-hmm. if they come back with, well, it's the way we've always done it and they're firm in their ways, it's basically like, all right, well, that's a red flag to me to get the hell out of here and go somewhere else where, yeah. you know, they're open to, open to discussion or at least they can, explain themselves well and you know provide some rationale and some thinking behind it as opposed to like just a blind decision well the previous guy did it it's like all right cool but what why are we still doing x you know right but yeah i don't know i was i've been talking with coaches past couple weeks about um how much i see um like a lot of black and white camps on certain topics within within the field and it's oftentimes not so black and white. It's there's a lot of gray area that has to be accepted, but for some reason people just bear down really, really hard on now you can't do Olympic lifting and trap bar jump drugs. You must mm-hmm. pick one. And it's like, no, man, it, it depends. It depends on a lot of things like. In, yeah. So anyway, I was just trying to think of other things I've been seeing recently that, you know, like, uh, like Craig, Craig Edwards, I've been following some of his mm-hmm. stuff. And, um, I think what I saw from him with the, with the movement screen, if I remember correctly is, you know, seeing, if you watch an athlete do a, a single leg RDL and they can do a chin up, that's his movement screen. Yep. And I, I'm sure I'm missing one or two points that he said, but I mean, that's the gist of it. Um, but the other thing is they got up that I think he caught a lot of flack for as well was the, uh, his comments on core training, you know, just giving his opinion, his thoughts on how to train the core or whatever. And everybody Mm -hmm. got all up in arms about that. So that's another one where it's like, well, you can do a lot of different things. You don't have to have either or, you know? Yep. So, um, but anyway, so with your, with your athletes, like when you have them come through, um, and you said you've got like 10 racks that you're effectively working with the, with the group on, right? Mm-hmm. Um, do you have 
you have it set up where there's athletes with each team that go to their assigned rack and then they're they're working through like mobility flexibility while someone's doing a main lift or how's how's that structured look yep so i don't have assigned racks or anything it's just partner up and go so i i do a I don't want to say like autonomous, but I don't have a ton of rigid structure because you, you spend more time playing hall monitor and traffic cop than, than you do actually training. So I, I don't structure it too much of you go here, you go there. Mm-hmm. Uh, it also kind of, kind of takes care of itself. You know, I'll tell them partner up with similar strength people or similar height if it's a squat because they, they have to set the pins. Yep. And they figure it out amongst themselves pretty quick. You know, all, all your five foot, 10, 300 pound squatters are going to go together and you're six, five, 135 pound newbies are going to go together and they kind of just figure it out. Mm-hmm. Um, and then our programs are like 99% set in triceps for that reason. So we have, a, we have the racks, we have the open space and we have the dumbbells. So typically it's an exercise that's done on the rack, something that can be done anywhere. And then something that can be done with dumbbells or machines or whatever it is. Um, so that structure creates flow because they literally have to go to different points in the room and nothing gets too tied up. So with a big group, if you get four group, four kids on a rack, one person's squatting, one person's doing a box jump, another person's doing like a, an overhead, a one-arm overhead press with a dumbbell. So you have somebody on the rack, somebody in the open space doing a jump, and then somebody with a dumbbell, and then somebody in transition. And just that structure keeps it flowing. Um, so that's, that's kind of how I program is something on the rack, something that can be done anywhere, something with the dumbbell, so on and so forth. And then I just plug in exercises where I see fit um, to fit that structure. And that drives a lot of it. What we do versus what we don't do is going to be driven on, okay, oh, I'd love to do a a squat jump here. Okay, but we're using the bar to squat with, so we can't use the barbell. So what do we do? Okay, well, I'll do a dumbbell jump instead. We do a dumbbell jump because the bar is taken. And that's the only reason we do it. Um, Or like, I'd love to do trap bar jumps. Okay, well, I'm using trap bar deadlifts, so I can't do that. Um, Or I want to... I want to bench press and chin ups. That's a good, you know, agonist antagonist, but the chin up bars above the bench, you can't do that. So what do I have to, I have to superset bench and say dumbbell rows and do chin ups later because the bench is already taken. So it's just making, making it fit the, the flow of your room. Um, and that's really all it is, is design the program to flow well in your room and all that stuff kind of takes care of itself. Mm-hmm. So when you're talking about similar strength levels, <laughs> at the beginning there um what do you guys do any sort of testing or do you view that as like a like a missed training week altogether how's that look for you guys getting away from it some still one rep max test we used to one rep with with a lot of teams some still do it um some have gotten away from it because i realized we kind of milk the max strength for what it's worth not at the end of the semester so typically when you when you test you know like a one rep max or three rep whatever you do it it's like a testing week at the end of the semester well what if you're in the middle of the semester or in like six weeks in and you've said i think we've gotten enough out of this why not switch now mm-hmm. so i'm not just going to pull a one rep max out of thin air um so for those teams like baseball is a good example of this i was watching the guys train and we we're pulling like serious weight on the trap bars and i'm like i think we're strong enough and I was calculating, okay, the guys on average weigh about 180 pounds. They're pulling like double body weight for reps. It's like, okay, I think we've gotten enough out of this. So I asked a few guys, you know, how many more could you do? Come up with a quick, like, 
reps in reserve. Okay, that puts this guy's max at like 2.7 times body weight. Okay, he's strong enough. So it, it's kind of like those, like an almost like an eyeball test of like, okay, I think we're strong enough. Now we start to switch. So testing, some we do a one rep at the end of the semester, but some whip I've just found it's not necessary. Just by watching them hit like a couple of heavy triples, you can see, okay, they're in a strong enough range. I really could care less what the actual one rep max is. They're strong enough. And I think a lot get tied up in, oh, what is the actual one rep max number? Man, who cares? Mm-hmm. Whether it's 2.6 or 2.7 or 2.8 times body weight, it doesn't matter. At a certain point, it doesn't matter. Yep. So um, I've realized earlier than the end of the semester, they were strong enough. So I made that switch. So as far as testing, some do it, but I'm getting away from it just because it's flat out not necessary. I can get the same information just by watching them and kind of doing quick calculator math. Um, seeing where they're at relative strength wise. Um, and all your returners kind of know where they're at The you know, the 200 pound squatters and the 300 pound squatters, they know who each other are. So they'll kind of partner up the freshmen, the kids who are serious and have lifted before they'll find, they'll find the peers. They'll be, they'll be sniffing the other strong guys out. Um, you know, I did that when I was a freshman, I, I knew I was stronger than most. Um, so you find, where you need to go. And the other ones kind of just group up together. It's like you go with your roommate because you don't know who else to go with. Well, that actually works because you're both novices. So that's fine. Mm-hmm. Again, it kind of takes care of itself. Um, or even after one, one day where, you know, you get the seniors end up with like a freshman, that freshman's going to find another rack the very next time. Or I'll say like, you, no, no, you go over here with them. Yeah, you go. that's a better, that's a better mix there. So again, it, it just, uh, it just figures itself out. Yeah. Yeah, it was a, uh, you know, when I was, when I was at that uh, small NAIA school, you know, and we had, we had football. So it was a, what made it interesting was it was an all Native American school. Mm. And, um, you know, we'd have basically two groups of, at least two groups of 30 for football come in. Um, so I would put, you know, so many guys would go on, on a rack and it was kind of, designated by you know size experience level that kind of thing so similar to what you're talking about and uh the the funniest thing was you had guys who um didn't want to push weight and make the other guys look bad you know they wanted to to hang with their buddies and you know all stay at the same weights and all this stuff and it it really took some time to get them to understand of like Hey man, like you, ha- like you're capable of more. You have to actually live up to your, you know, your, your potential here and you have to actually push the envelope. And mm-hmm. if you leave, if you leave your buddies behind, that's fine. You know, they may leave you behind in other, other lifts, but you've got to push it. And that was just one of the big, one of the big hurdles there because it's more of a collective, uh, culture as opposed to, you know, culture that I'm more accustomed to where it's like, no, you got, you, like, you want to stand out. So for mm-hmm. them, it was like, no, don't, you know, don't want to stand out too much. So um, anyway, it's just interesting to watch the dynamics of play in a situation like that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So um, when you're, are there any freshmen who come in that are just like, you're very impressed with that are stupid strong or do they all need quite a bit of coaching right away? We were on the gambit. Um, there's freshmen that can't walk and chew gum at the same time. And we have freshmen, <laughs> like I have one baseball pitcher, um, 
he he's he can lunge he can reverse lunge on a safety bar like 1.7 times his body weight it's insane <laughs> um and it's like crap what do you do like you're a finished product and he was talking to me like shit i focus on more like power stuff i'm like yeah we'll talk about that like after the season but <laughs> yeah dude it's it's about power you are strong enough um so we get guys like that um and then you also get let's say a soccer player who's never lifted before who was probably even told lifting is bad. Yep. So you get the, you get the whole camp or kids who are like lifted, you know, bench press and curls in high school and they have some experience. Um, so we, we really run the whole gambit. You, you see it more with some sports than others, but it does happen. You know, we had baseball players never lifted before and they're in the same class as the other guy. Yep. So yeah, it's all over the place. And that, that's a, that's a kind of unique challenge to this level is, all those guys are walking in the door at the same time, regardless of class level. And you got to figure it out. How do you program to that level? Um, not, not knowing where they're at or with such a wide variety of skills. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a, co- as a common problem you see like a high school, a high school strength coach could see upwards of like 60, 70, 80 kids. Some show up every day, some don't. And it's how do you program? Um, and you, so one thing I've done to, to solve that problem is you, you pick things that can be done well by all levels, but are scalable. Mm-hmm. Like for example, a reverse lunge, a novice can do just the bar and it'll be fairly tough to do like a set of eight with just the bar and they just get the movement down. Whereas 1.7 guy can rep out his body weight for a set to eight. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's scalable. You have the same group doing the same lift, but different weights depending on where they're at. Um, like we had a, in that same group, there was a walk on kid showed up second semester. Okay. He's doing just the bar where 1.7 guys in the corner doing his thing. So same, same sport, same class, same exercise, just scale to where they're at. Um, so you pick things that also fit that, that fit that notion. That's another reason why we like a trap bar deadlift, uh, novice can do the 25 pound bumpers. Your advanced guys can pull four wheels yep. so it's it's scalable it's scalable and if you need to regress on the spot like i don't have built-in regressions i kind of regress on the spot like i had a, my golfers were in yesterday and most of them are pretty good but i noticed one guy just could not maintain posture on the trap bar so i had him switch to a kettlebell deadlift um right on the spot so i didn't kind of plan that i just saw that okay this guy does not have the strength in his upper back to hold even a hundred pound trap bar kettlebell so mm-hmm. i kind of just fixed it on the spot. Um, but for most of the guys, it was scalable. They could do it. You know, I had guys to pull 300 pounds plus, and I had guys that are doing just, you know, 135. Right. So you pick stuff that can be done by the whole group. And again, that, that goes back to your programming. That kind of logistical stuff drives your programming. So, you know, I said, oh, I want to do reverse bands. This and that. I want to do bands and chains, Louis Simmons, or I want to do cleans. Okay, well, if you have a kid that can't walk up the stairs properly, cleans and snatches aren't going to happen. Whereas if you have a kid who you had for four years, they may be an expert cleaner, but mm-hmm. these freshmen aren't. Um, so you have to pick things. If you, if you do have such a mixed group, you have to pick things that are scalable across the board that can be done well by everybody across the board. And I think a lot of people get entrenched into certain things. And that's one of the things I see a lot with Olympic lifts is, oh, we have to clean. The clean is the best. Okay, well, you got seniors that can rep out not rep out, you don't want to rep out, but can, can really nail a cleaner, a snatch roll. And you have freshmen that are like reverse curling the bar. 
It's like, okay, did, did those either you got to program down to the freshman and you leave your best kids hanging, or you got to drive the output with the older kids and let the younger ones struggle. So what do you do? And it, it's hard to scale that kind of an exercise. So you got to pick things that fit, yeah. that fit that kind of situation. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So yeah, man, a couple of things that, that you touched on that I, I like is the, uh, you know, when you're talking a few moments ago about, you know, if you've got, it's basically the question, how strong is too strong, right? Um, mm-hmm. If you've got 2.6, 2.7, 2.8, like at what point are we getting, you know, diminishing returns or are we risking more injury than is necessary kind of thing? Right. Is, I absolutely see it where it's like, you know, hey man, if we're past, if we're past like two and a half, you know, 2.6, do we really need to go to 2.7? You know, yeah. and I see that a lot. And, you know, the, the second thing there, we're talking about scaling and whatnot. Um, you know, I'm so here in the, the Sear side where I'm at, these guys, when they arrive and they PCS and get here, they may be here, they may be here on this campus from roughly like on the long end would be here like six months and then they're, they're moving on on the short end. They may be here like two months and it's like, okay, what, what kind of variations can I do if I'm, if I'm training power that day that they can learn quickly, that can build on each other and we can introduce the the whole at a later date if they're still Mm -hmm if they're still here, but, um, yeah, it absolutely is one of those things where, Hey, maybe, a, maybe a clean is not appropriate. Maybe instead we do a clean grip jump shrug or a clean grip high pole or something of that nature, or, you know, maybe they've got a, a wrist or a shoulder issue and we can do banded jumps or whatever, but it really does come down to, to being creative and to looking at, you know, what are the needs, what's necessary versus not necessary. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, I think in your situation where you've got the obviously large groups all at once around the same age, and you're gonna, I mean, you're likely gonna have them for all four years, right? So, yep. um, you know, it's it's one of those one of those things where I think you've got a got a good hey, you can just adjust on the fly kind of thing, and you've got a good system built in as you see fit, you know, but. Um, yeah, man. So what else, what else is, uh, have you been experimenting with it with anything recently or trying out anything new to see how, how athletes are responding? Um, not, not, not particularly, like you said, we, we kind of figure out the structure and the system that works for us, mm-hmm. uh, but put a lot more emphasis on, on single leg work. And that's because that's because I think we we maxed out that bilateral strength fairly quickly. Yeah, um, they can come in, they can trap bar well. So now we're trying to push up reverse launch numbers mm-hmm. um, because there's still meat on the bone there. So I think that's one thing I'm placing more of an emphasis on. I've always I've always done unilateral as a as an accessory movement or like a secondary thing, and now I'm making it more of a primary thing. It goes back to okay, you're strong enough in one thing. Okay, find something you're not strong enough in and make that strong enough. Um, so, for example, taking that baseball 
example, they, you know, they're moving weight on the trap bar and the squat, but the lunges, lunges were good, but not great. Okay. Let's get the lunges great. Now let's get lunges great. And let's transfer the, um, the bilateral stuff to more of a dynamic effort because they're already strong enough. Let's drive more bar speed there and let's get strong enough on the lunge. Mm-hmm. Um, so play around with that. Um, that's pretty much it. I think just make sure our, our program stands the test of time and it continues to work at, at a certain point. It's you develop the system and you make little tweaks here and there, but that's the whole point of the system is you let it run mm-hmm. and you don't need, you don't need to um, innovate every semester. It's okay. This works for us. Good. Go run it, you know, have a ball. Um, and, you know, don't sit at your desk for an extra 10 hours a, a week and think, Oh, well, what kind of dumbbell row can we do better? Dude, who cares? Like the whole point of having a system is to let the system run. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, not, not really, we're not really yeah. doing a ton of new stuff because it works. What we're doing is working. Yeah. We're just going to do it and go execute. Gotcha. Yeah. That was, that was one thing that was, that was nice for me when I was um, at the NAI schools, you know, there, there were some guys that would come in with a good training age and, it was a, it was a fun time to experiment and try like, okay, for especially like track athletes, I think was the, the most fun to test with, like try different things with, because you know, you, okay, we're going to try this for this block of time and then we'll take it out and test it. Do you throw farther? Mm -hmm. Do you run faster? Cool. All right. Let's make an adjustment. Um, but for them, for most of the teams, you know, like you see the same levels of deficiencies and whatnot. And, you know, to your point, you can basically keep the same, same system in place. But then with the, some of those track athletes, it was, okay, cool. Let's try, let's try, you know, for example, like French contrast. And then with this team, let's try, or this individual, let's try a full triphasic training. This mm-hmm. one, we're going to try a little conjugate, you know, and just see how the athletes respond. But, um, I think that was a, a good time to experiment and test and just keep that stuff in the back of my head about okay maybe if i've got somebody for a a very long time and they plateau at a point we can start introducing some advanced concepts but um it's one of those things where i see people advance things too quickly too soon for athletes that are absolutely amateur you know Mm -hmm. so for sure anyway but uh yeah. So I think we'll wrap this up here in just a minute, but, um, yeah, man, one, one thing I wanted to, um, touch on, because I think there, there's probably a couple strength coaches that are listening to this or aspiring strength coaches. Um, one thing that I've seen you post quite a bit about is, is financial, um, wellness, mm-hmm. you know, so, um, is there anything, any good resources you have that you would suggest for, strength coaches in terms of actually getting themselves educated on, uh, finances. Absolutely. Yeah. I have it, the, the perfect resource for that. And I know it's good because my fiance and I wrote it ourselves. Um, okay. so, um, she is a recently minted PhD. Um, so she was a grad student for four years. I'm a strength coach. So, you know, I grew, I rose the ranks volunteer part-time, so on and so on. finally full-time job, the whole bit. Um, and she was a grad student. Um, she started out as an adjunct professor, which is part-time. So she was part-time, you know, basically a GA and I was part-time GA the whole bit. 
and we've been able to put ourselves in a good financial situation now and down the line because of the things we did growing up to that point. So we basically wrote our story of, okay, here's the things we did. Here's how we saved money on everything from rent to cars, to car insurance, like how we kept our cost of living down um, and really built really good financial habits um, and things that set us up well. Cause now when we actually have jobs and make real money, it's, you realize what you don't need to spend money on and how much people just hemorrhage money mm-hmm. and man- managing money is not hard. Um, it's just mo- most people are absolutely horrible or don't think of the long term, or we're, we're never taught about the long term ramifications of things like that, of spending poorly and having poor spending habits, or just what is unreasonable to spend on, you know, what, what should or shouldn't you. Uh, so we wrote about all that. How do we keep our, our, you know, our food costs down? What do we spend money on? You know, how many times do we go out to eat? Things like that. So everything that set us up well to the point where we can can invest and really set up ourselves set ourselves up well financially. Um, it's all the habits and stuff we've built and the lessons we've learned throughout time. Really, the stuff we were never taught that we uh-huh. just learned and figured out and basically had to because we were on a grad student and a part time strength coach salary. You kind of have to go through. Okay, what do I need? What do I not need? I only have X amount of money. What can I afford? And fast forward several years, okay, you realize you don't need to spend this much money on this thing. You should spend about X amount on that. Um, and then next steps, okay, you have this extra money. What do you do with it? Do you pay down debt? Um, do you invest it? How do you invest it? What does investing look like? How does the stock market work? How do I improve my credit? How do I get a loan? That kind of thing. So it's all the questions that we had, all the questions that we had, all the habits that we've done, um, and we wrote about it. And it's not some it's a very unique path, you know, strength coaches, volunteers, GAs, they don't need the same, you know, we're not really worried about 401ks. We're worried about how do I pay for this? Cause I make 10 grand a year or grad students, you know, I only make, I only get paid for nine months out of the year. What do I do? How do I make extra money? What is a side hustle? How do I find a side hustle? What do I, you know, how do I, how do I find cheaper rent, but not live in a terrible place? Things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so we wrote about it. Um, and it's, it's applicable because we did it ourselves and a lot of people are in this, are in this situation. Um, and it applies directly to them. And that's probably the go-to resource I'd say for that. Okay. Do you have a, do you have a link to that or a website? So that's, that's going to be in my, in my bio in both Twitter and Instagram. And it's the second one down. Um, I'm actually, it's called financial wellness 101. All the things you didn't learn about money. Okay. So if you, What's your Instagram and Twitter handle? So Twitter is going to be P Basil Strength, uh, P B A S I L Strength, and it's the same for Instagram. Okay. And it's just my link tree and my bio on both of those, and it's going to be the second one down. Financial Wellness One Hundred and One, um, everything you wish to learn about money. So it's everything we learned about how to save, how to invest, how to make extra money. That's always been a, that's been a common theme for both of us. We've both found side hustles throughout the years, um, and ways to make more money. Yeah, so. and talking about. Um, cause I, obviously your, your side hustle, um, I've seen, seen a lot of positive feedback, uh, from coaches who have invested in it. Um, mm-hmm. can you elaborate on that a little bit? Cause I've, I've seen some of your programming, but I'm not sure I've caught everything. Sure. So it's, it's, I create a resource as the common problems. And if you want to make money, if you want to make money, there it is in a nutshell. Um, find a, find a problem, create a solution, push the solution. That's it. It's really that simple. So what I found with a lot of my stuff is there's no clear cut guide 
for somebody who needs doesn't need the fluff. It's okay. I don't have all day. Tell me, tell me what I need and nothing else. Mm-hmm. So that's what I created. Um, so I have a strength program design manual to teach you how to design strength training programs. So like what we do, strength and conditioning stuff, um, how to put a workout together, what exercise variations do I pick? What is basic periodization? So let's say you have a high school strength coach who is a history teacher during the day, a football coach in the afternoon, a dad and a husband at night. Oh, and somewhere in there, be a strength coach for your team. Like this guy does not have time to sit down and digest super training. It is mm-hmm. what, what do I need to know right now to get the job done? And that's, that's the resource I felt wasn't out there. So that's what I created. So all of my stuff is very simplified down to the point, no fluff, no nonsense. Here's exactly what you need with templates you can follow. So it's, it's like, you know, for, for the dummies books, so it's like, mm-hmm. what is, um, you know, baseball for dummies? It's basically strength conditioning for dummies and not in a negative connotation, but right, yeah, yeah. here's what you need to know. And I even get um, tenured coaches who are overthinking and like, am I doing the right thing? And they see it as a centering guide, like, okay, I am on the right track. This really helped me simplify. So even if you're somebody who is in the field and knows what they're doing, it's always good to be had that centering kind of voice that, okay, I am on the right track or this, I know what I'm doing, but this helped me simplify. And I realized I was doing too much. And it kind of goes back to that. We were just talking about people doing too much with different populations. Yep. And I realized how to simplify. And then the same idea with conditioning. I looked in the, so I had the, I had the NSCA essentials text in my desk. I just have it just to have it. So it's 500 something pages. I flipped through the other day. I looked for the chapter that says, and I made a meme about this and it was kind of a joke, but it's actually true. Um, I was looking for the, the section that wrote how to write a conditioning program in the 500 pages of the NSCA textbook. It does not exist. Sets and reps, yards, rest intervals. It doesn't exist. There's no clear cut section of say, okay, do this many sprints for this many times, do this much rest. You'll get like the physiological charts of like, okay, the oxidative system goes from a minute to three minutes. Okay. okay but how do I prescribe an interval run? How many sprints do I do? What yardage? How many reps? How much rest do I take? It doesn't exist. So there was a problem I identified, created a solution, and that's a conditioning manual Um, or in-season training. It's not in the NSCA textbook. It's not in there. What percentage do I do in-season? How many reps do I do? Do I do high reps, low weight? Do I do low weight, high reps, but I don't want to make them sore. How do I make them not sore, but still maintain strength? It's important to stay, right? You have all these questions and there's nowhere to turn. That's what I created my stuff for. Somebody who really is just scratching their head, trying to find answers and is not finding them. Here's the one shot guide you need for exactly that. So that's what I have all my programs to be. And then templates and examples of things you can actually follow and use. So it's not just information. It's actual like, okay, here now, here's examples. Here's templates, plug in things that work, ready to go. Yeah. So it's kind of, here's the stuff you need to know. Now follow this template, paint by the numbers, you're good to go. And you can take somebody that knows nothing, can read it, use the examples, and then go be effective. Mm-hmm. And that's that's what the that's what all the products are, whether it's you know strength programming, conditioning, in-season training, and then some other stuff too. Um, so that's basically my my products and my my stuff in a nutshell is serving that no nonsense need of people who need to know right now what to do. But the important question is, did you put in there how high the mirrors need to be and all that kind of relevant stuff? You know, 
<laughs> only if you know what the sarcomere is first. So if you get your sarcomere <laughs> down and your class levers, then you can worry about me. That's level three. Yeah, God. But, yeah. Uh, that's the stuff yeah. you get in the textbooks. Well, cool. I'm I'm glad. I'm really happy to hear that you put put something like that together for for coaches because um, you know it's absolutely a need of. There's so much just extra extra stuff that's like okay, cool, but like, can you just boil it down to like ten pages, twenty pages, and just tell me exactly what I need to know? Yep. You know, exactly. so um, yeah, good on you, man, for for getting that put together. Appreciate um, it. But uh, yeah, so. Um, all right. I think that about covers it. Um, stay after we, uh, go ahead and end here, um, stay on. Cause there's another couple things I want to talk to you about. So, sure. um, but anyway, uh, Pat, thanks for being on man. And, uh, before I forget, um, yeah, I, I think that's it. So yeah, Pat, thanks for being on and, uh, we'll hopefully talk again here soon, man. Cool. Appreciate it. Thank you.